And this morning we're talking in particular uh, in this last session uh, of this series on what it means for that king to return, to come back. It's our future and our hope uh, and it will be a day of great rejoicing. Uh, But before we go any further, I'm going to pray as well because I need to keep doing it. Heavenly Father, we come before you giving thanks, Lord. Giving thanks that we get even now, before the day of your son's return, even now we can sing to you of your truths, of your glory. We can call out um, our needs and our our wants and know that you hear them through your son and through the groaning of the spirit. This morning, Heavenly Father, we look, turn our eyes in your word to consider your son as he comes in the clouds in the days, uh, days ahead. And Father, uh, bound up as we are still in bodies uh, that fight and struggle with sin, not yet uh, having been redeemed in the body. Lord, we grow dull at times to your wonder, to your glory, to rejoicing in you. And Father, we pray, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone here this morning as we fix our eyes upon your word and contemplate that day to come, Lord, that through your spirit you would give us uh, a fresh sight, Lord, of, of who you are, that we might rejoice, that we might sing of your praises as you deserve to be sung of. Only when you are the focus, our focus, does everything fall into place. Only when you are king for us and for all of creation does everything fall back into order. Does all of creation rejoice? And so we pray, Lord, open our eyes now by your spirit to be able to see you and delight in you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to start off by looking at the book of Daniel, in particular chapter 7. It is a rather daring place to begin, um, as Daniel chapter 7 is the beginning of his visions, uh, just after the story that we all know well of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, I can tell you I'm not going to be going into great depth about what it means uh, and the timing of things. Uh, One, because I don't know. Uh, These things are in part a mystery to us until they happen. Uh, You'll see that uh, for Daniel in his vision, he speaks of four beasts and ten horns and then another horn that overthrows three horns. Uh, Each beast, I'm, I'm thinking, and the text says, represents a different kingdom in humanity. Each horn, another king. Each one coming and going in its time. Each one bringing a more ter- uh, being more terrible than the last. And yet never lasting at the same time. And the portion of Daniel 
uh, that whose dreams concern the beast and the horns and the kingdoms and the king uh, with a kingdom will end with a kingdom that reigns over the whole earth, it says. And we'll have kings that defy God and persecute and oppress the people of God, seeking to change the times and the laws by their own power. Now, as I said, I'm not going to speak much on this subject this morning. <clears throat> Always when it comes to end times things, uh, discussions, people get caught up in the details. I've never actually heard a message certainly never preached a message that hasn't been detail-orientated, and I've always found it utterly dull and uninteresting, um, and I, I struggle to stay awake during those times because I never capture the glory of what's happening in this moment, just trying to predict when and who these kingdoms are, who these kings are. We're not going to do that. I'm not prepared to do that. What I will say, though, is this, that it appears that all of these kingdoms and kings are an image of human history, capturing in some way our past, our present and our future as humanity before the coming of Christ. In all the history of man as we have known it and experienced it and anticipate it yet to be, there has been an ongoing turnover of kingdoms and kings of countries and governments, each one overturning another and in turn then being overturned themselves, each one promising a new way, a better way to live, a new solution, a new hope, a new lease on life for humanity, and yet each one falls. Not just to the next kingdom, but to their own inability to be more than a broken and a simple humanity. I cannot escape it. To be something that would last forever, to overcome their brokenness. And doing it without submitting to God or calling out for a saviour. We see in Romans... A human and in human history, that each new attempt by humanity as a whole to improve upon its last self does not work. Each attempt is not an upward spiral, where each attempt is an improvement upon the last, and eventually, maybe one day, we'll get to a place where we have a kingdom that'll last forever. No. Nor is it simply a circular history where nothing is being achieved at all and nothing is degrading at all. It's simply going on and on. But as we see from Romans in particular, uh, and as we proceed from the Garden of Eden until now, the kingdom of man has been a downwards spiral. Each generation's attempt to reign and uh, proves only worse than the last generation. Only doing more depraved things than the last. Each promised solution proves only its ability to make things worse for humanity. 
but buy deeper into the lies that it's better. And yet those still bound to Adam as their head believe that this is salvation. We just press forwards and one day we'll get there. But one day, Daniel's vision foretells, we will reach the bottom of that spiral with a kingdom and a king that detests God and persecutes his people like never before. And it will be a bleak day indeed. Yet what I want to draw out this morning is what follows that vision of an evil kingdom and evil kings and the failure of men. What happens at the culmination of this dark future? We read it from Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's a day coming when Jesus, a man, the new head of humanity, will appear in the clouds of heaven. He, unique to all that have come before him, has been given authority and glory and sovereign power over all things. And with it, he judges the world and overthrows the kingdom of darkness and the kings that exist at that time and replaces them with his own. A kingdom filled with all nations and people of every language worshipping him. A wonderful king whose reign, as we read in Psalms 45 a few weeks ago, who reigns with truth and humility and righteousness and justice with love and not a hate and sorry and hates wickedness and he is a king that is anointed as we saw with oils of joy and grace upon his lips and his dominion has no end unlike everything that we have known a kingdom that will go on forever. This occasion, the coming of this king, is what we will speak on and rejoice in the coming of the Son of Man. Upon his arrival, we as those who even now belong to his kingdom will enter in finally to a time of liberty and a time of rest. For Israel, every 50 years was to be the year of Jubilee. A year of liberty and rest for the people and for the land that they occupied. 
at that time, when that year came around, all the debts that had been accrued, no matter how old or how young they were, were cancelled. All the slaves set free. Property was returned to its original owners. The land itself rested because in that year there was no sowing and no reaping. This, as is so often the case with Israel's practices, is a foretaste of the liberty and the rest that the people of God, that we will one day have in the coming of this eternal king. In that year of Jubilee, the high priest would make an atonement for the people before the Lord. He would take a sacrifice and take the blood of that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, which is where the presence of God dwelled. And when he was done, he would walk out and it would be proof that that sacrifice had been accepted, the atonement had been made for the people and the trumpets would sound at the exit of this high priest. As the people saw him out, those trumpets would sound and everyone would know peace and rest had come to the land. The year of Jubilee had begun. When Jesus ascended, which we see at the beginning of the book of Acts, he went as our high priest to stand before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And he offered his own blood as the sacrifice and the offering of atonement for us before the very face of of the Lord. And there he dwells even now, making intercession for each one of us to be included into that sacrifice. But it is as Daniel saw, the day that he exits heaven, having been given by God, in that time, authority and glory and sovereign power that the trumpets sound and all the people will know this is the beginning of the year of Jubilee, or really of all of eternity, of liberty and rest, the beginning of an era of liberty and rest for the children of God, for all of creation that will know no end. Now, speaking of this day, like this brings us joy. But for some people, it is not such a joyous occasion to think about. For Jesus, at the time that he comes, is described as judge of all the earth. Even by believers, hearing this title can make us uncomfortable, fearful, even of this day. It takes the Jesus we know who is merciful, who loves sinners, and it seems to turn him 
in our eyes into an executioner drenched in the blood, uh, drenched in blood. And we become uncertain about our salvation because we're uncertain about our saviour in that moment. For our saviour is a man, Jesus, and it makes us question his character. Whether it has changed and we're suddenly seeing the other side of a coin of Jesus that we didn't know beforehand. It is taught in medieval Roman Catholicism that on this day Jesus has come to measure the merit of the whole world. He almost comes like Santa with a list of those who have been naughty and those who have been nice. And it is no wonder if we hold him in this view that people become unsure when anyone that has any sort of understanding of their own failings finds themselves uncomfortable at the idea of him returning as judge. But if Jesus is as we have seen in scripture these last few weeks, if he's truly one of us, a man, our forerunner, our head, the bridegroom who went ahead of us to prepare a place for his bride and the church. And the one who looks at us and calls us brother and sister without any shame, then his return as judge is not, as Reeves would say, simply doomsday but as Martin Luther calls it, the most happy of days. For we truly are united to the one of glory on that day who has bought us, not come to measure our merit, but to claim who is already his. He has come in glory to bring us to him so that we can sing as we find in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now on that great day, our bondage to decay and death will come to an end and our rest for eternity will begin. But our greatest joy, this is something we've been wrestling with all through this series, will not simply reside in those things as wonderful as they are. Our greatest joy will not be in the rest, in the liberty that we have. It will be in Jesus, in being united to him. Our eyes will be upon his face on that day. Everything that is distracting will fall away into its own place because we'll be looking at him. We'll be united to him and no sin will be in our way. No distracting thoughts or anything unhelpful. No holding back from previous pains of the past. No insecurities 
or uncertainties anymore. We'll be face to face with the great love of our lives. And the great promise of God for his people has always been this. And what is realised on this day, I will live with them. Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and you will be, uh, and be your God and you will be my people. Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Revelation 21, 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what we have been waiting for. The full culmination of what has already begun. From Titus we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Saviour and Saviour Jesus Christ. And when he is the focus of our rejoicing, we will delight in the blessings that he gives us as they were meant to be. The removal of evil, new bodies, transformation into Christ's likeness, full redemption to him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, 28, that when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, it will mark the renewal of all things. All of creation has been waiting for this judge to come. Because he comes, as we heard a few weeks ago, to bring about his kingdom and his rule. And that is a just and a righteous kingdom and rule. And it is the doing away of all that is evil and cruel in this world. All the enemies of God will be removed, all things renewed. And his children will inherit that renewed earth. It's funny how often, uh, on a side note, talking to my girls, where do we go after life? Here. Heaven. Heaven's the hope. Heaven's the dream. Heaven's the, the, the medium place. Heaven's where we dwell while we wait for this place. A new earth. That's the goal. In Genesis, Adam had dominion over all of creation. In the beginning. And it was in order. You remember there was a sea of chaos before God came. And then out of that sea he established order. The oceans are always a view of chaos. 
all things at that time operated and obeyed and delighted in the way of God and the way that he made them. And they were content and fully delighted in that place. An order that after the fall was like a jumper with a loose thread. It just began to unravel. And it fell apart and became good for nothing. Even right now, Hebrews says, after the cross, we do not yet at this time see all things in submission to those in Christ. There is still, even post the cross, disorder and chaos in this world. Evil and decay, the unmaking of creation and God's order. A return to the dark waters. But when the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, all things are made anew. A man, as we saw in Daniel's vision, will have dominion again, like Adam was intended to. Jesus will have a dominion, though, that will last forever, never unravelling again. He will have a dominion that lasts forever and all the evil, all the decay, all the disorder will be reordered, remade, restored. Not the undoing of all of creation, but the liberating of all of creation from that bondage to decay, a rest from its moaning and its waiting for the glorification of the sons of God and a restoration to what God always intended, but now in Jesus. Psalm 98 says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Here you see that title, Judge of All the Earth. And the response is not fear, but rejoicing, shouting for joy to the Lord. Now what is the nature of Jesus' power to judge? How has he, as a man, earned the right to judge the world? Or how does he do it? He has been given power to judge, we see in Revelation 5.9, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God's, for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
How did Jesus defeat and conquer death and defeat the kingdoms of darkness but by giving his own life to save people and to defeat that kingdom? This is the nature of his power, a self-giving power. The book of Revelation, in contrast, speaks of a dragon in chapter 12. In contrast to the Lamb of God, it is a beast that conquers as well, but it doesn't do so by giving its own life. It conquers by taking the life of others for itself, for its own power. Reeves writes, the fact that Christ is the judge of all the earth is not evidence of a vicious and an unpleasant side of his character, finally showing itself at the end. It is no cause to make us waver in our love to him. Quite the opposite. The earth-shaking power of the Lamb does not mean that the humble friend of sinners has changed in his character. It's rather that his cause, his character, his light is victorious. His truth will drive out lies, his beauty, ugliness, his goodness, evil. The lamb wins. Now, my children love to have pillow fights with dad. It's a way that they can go their hardest and hit with everything that they have throwing things at me beating me with all their might but no harm ever comes of it and it is delightful because I can do exactly the same back to them and there's no harm because pillows are not effective weapons are they Oftentimes, I think we look at the truth of God at his righteousness, his gospel of peace, his faith, his word, and we see them as pillows because they are of such great comfort to his people. A place of rest and we delight in them and we take rest in them and we should. But we should not be mistaken for them to being powerless against the fight of evil. For in the eyes of the devil, the ruler and authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil, God's truth, his righteousness, his gospel of peace and faith and word are weapons of war. In Ephesians, we are told by Paul that to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, we are to put on the full armour of God. And those things that we take comfort in of peace and righteousness are described as armour and swords to stand against this power of evil. And so it is with Christ in his judgment. He is ready to judge, to overthrow the powers of darkness. And it's those very aspects of truth and righteousness and peace that bring us so much comfort that he destroys and has victory over the enemy with. His self-sacrificial love 
lays the enemy low. And it's in this way that he changes not one bit when he comes to, for the final victory. When he is either the lion or the lamb, he is exactly the same. I preached quite a few years ago on the threat of God from Spurgeon. And it's interesting when you think about what threat God is. When he is described as a lion, it's a terrifying thing if you have a sovereign God against you. But when you are that lion's cub, what a comfort it is to know that you have a threatening God who would protect you, who would keep you safe with those same weapons by which it provides for you and nurtures you. Also, upon Christ's return, we are united to him in the full, renewed, and all things not of him removed. And that, of course, includes our tired, old, decaying bodies. Reeves says, body and soul we belong to our faithful saviour. And that gives us wonderful comfort. But what polluted, inadequate temples we are, weak, decaying, confused and sinful. We are no longer slaves to sin, to be sure, but it still lingers, chafing, cramping, leeching our joy and our freedom. Sin steals, death bereaves, our bodies hurt, evil oppresses. That is how it is today. Yet in that day, we will be freed at last from the very presence of sin, death and evil. The sin's work now of perfecting and beautifying us, of making us like Christ, will then be fulfilled. Having been elected, called, justified and sanctified in Christ, we will finally and fully share in his own glorification. Our bodies will be free from the sagging and the aching and the bent over effects of sin and transformed to be perfect and splendid and glorious, and powerful, and imperishable forever, just like Jesus's. Then when our bodies have caught up with our souls in redemption, we will finally and fully share in his life and reign and victory over death. But not just our bodies will be renewed to Christ, but all of creation as well. For as Romans 8 tells, all of creation has been hopefully groaning, waiting for this day when the children of God will be glorified. 
and it will be set free from its own bondage to decay. Its slow unravelling back into darkness will not only be halted, but fully reversed, restored. Jesus will undo in his judgment all the chaos caused by the hands of Adam. And as Ephesians 1.10 says, when the times reach their fulfilment, God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And at that time, we will have our great hope of eternity, the thing that will outshine the sun forever. And even the miracle of a new body and restored creation will not compare to it. For we will be with Christ, the one whom we are united to, the one for whom and through whom and by whom or by whose power all things were created and are sustained and have been redeemed. And he will be our God and we will be his people forever. Matthew 25 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. Isn't that wonderful? Let me finish with that same quote that we have heard each week. Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, whether or not this morning you have given our own hearts a taste of your glory and opened our eyes to have joy in you. doesn't change the truth of what we've talked about this morning. That one day your son will come and a trumpet will sound and it will declare, Lord, the day that we will be united to you. Or you will be our God and we will be your people Lord, a truth that they even now exists, but on that day there will be nothing that separates us. We will be able to fully and wholly delight in you. Lord, there'll be that day we will be surprised, I'm sure, at the depth in which sin has been affecting us and holding us back. 
of the ways in which we have been bound and to be free. Father, I know there are times where maybe we can think on eternity and we see it as being in a boring church service for the rest of our lives or, Lord, it being cloud-like, like a dream. But none of those things are true. It will be a waking up to the most astounding of sunrises every morning as we look at your face. It will be the rest of eternity, finding new ways to delight and rejoice in you and know you more. It will be a lifetime of and more an eternity, Lord, without decay and bondage, but only greater delight in your glory, in working for you and speaking to one another, where we will be uh, in the new world more real than this world, where everything will be satisfied in you. No longer always looking for more, searching for the next thing. Lord, no longer the turning over of kingdoms and kings or having discontented hearts, wondering if there is something to be satisfied in. But to be fully and wholly content in you. And Lord, to know that, that in that day, Father, that all of creation will be singing that same song of praises to you and worship to you. Heavenly Father, I give thanks for our time in the last five weeks of being able to look at your word to be able to look toward your Son. And I pray that these things would, as always, Lord, not be simply a growth in understanding, Lord, but a real delight to our hearts as you pour your love into us, Lord, that we might overflow so that we can carry out into the weeks, Lord, a, a fresh delight in you to share with those around us. We pray that more people would come to know you, to rejoice in you, to call you Lord and look forward to the day of your return. And to hear that you are the judge of all the earth and praise you for it. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.